Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And I'm Zoe. And this is the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking to a special guest, Ed Conway, the economics editor of Sky News, about why inflation is worse in the UK. I'm Anusha Kelly, Britain editor of the New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have our political reporter, Zoe Grunewald, and our political correspondent, Freddie Haywood. And joining us down the line, we're delighted to have Ed Conway, Sky News's economics editor. Thanks so much for joining us, Ed. Thank you. We thought it'd be great to have you on today's episode because you've written this week's very good New Statesman cover story asking the key question, why is the UK more prone to inflation than anywhere else? So before we get into the reasons behind that, can you explain to us just how bad inflation is in the UK compared to other equivalent countries? So it, it's it's much higher than it is in any other G7 countries. So we do have the highest uh, inflation in, in the G7, so a group of seven biggest industrialised economies, places like Germany and, and the US and so on. Uh, Japan. Japan has very low inflation at the moment, actually, as it happens. They always have to uh, have done for the last kind of few decades. Um, but uh, we're not, I, I, it's worth just saying, we're not a complete outlier. You know, there, there are some other countries within Europe, for instance, that have slightly higher inflation, like Sweden and a few other places. But we are just kind of at that upper skew. And the weird thing is I remember looking back before this, this space of inflation, I remember looking back at the data in the 1970s and the 1960s. And there was this trend then as well that typically we would tend to have the highest, when inflation was high, we would have the highest inflation uh, in the G7. And I think that's the disconcerting thing. A lot of people assumed that all of those famous, you know, whatever, the Thatcherite reforms and things in the 1980s, that that would have changed things. You wouldn't have had as much of a um, this spiraling effect that we had last time around and that we had laid all of those ghosts to rest. And yet here we are all over again. And the worrying thing, at least from the Bank of England's perspective, and they're the ones who are supposed to be controlling this, not Rishi Sunak, despite his pledge. The worrying thing from the Bank of England's perspective is it's not just the kind of volatile stuff. It's also core inflation, which supposedly strips it out, although it's worth saying there are some question marks about how reliable that is. And it's also even more worryingly for them, it's services inflation. So it's not just the stuff you're buying, it's the stuff that, you know, like haircuts and, you know, going out and all of the things that we tend to spend quite a lot of money on, that's going up as well. And put all of that together and it suggests that it's a sticky inflation where it's becoming contagious. And when things get contagious, when when people just get used to higher prices, then you're in this slightly invidious situation where the bank's not quite sure what to do about it. And it feels like that's where we are. And it feels like all of those statistics, not just the headline inflation number, but services inflation, core inflation, all of those look like they're a bit worse in the UK than, than in most of Europe right now. 
And you mentioned the bank. I just wanted to ask you a bit about the Bank of England's role in that situation coming about, because you open your piece with this meeting in the summer of 2021, where um, they kind of feel like they might have made the wrong decision. Can you take us through what they decided and when and why it may have been uh, the wrong way of doing yeah. things? Yeah, I mean, it's worth it's worth saying this is not the consensus view at the bank. You know, this is an institution <laughs> which uh, which doesn't tend to admit many in the way of failings. I mean, although they have said that they they... They admit that their, their modelling on inflation hasn't been very good, so they haven't been forecasting it very well, and they've just done a new review into it. But I think this is more fundamental. It's saying that there was a period a couple of years ago, and it's worth looking a couple of years ago, because typically when you're talking about monetary policy interest rates, it typically takes kind of 18 months, two years to actually take an effect because it trickles through the system. People start to see higher borrowing costs, they adjust. Um, that takes time. So what we're living through right now is to some extent the the impact of what they were doing or weren't doing back then. And what weren't they doing or were they doing? Well, they certainly weren't raising interest rates back that summer. They were down at rock bottom, 0.1%. They certainly, you know, they weren't reversing quantitative easing. So quantitative easing, the, the printing of money, pumping it into the system, that emergency thing, that was still actually happening. They were actively going out there into the market and buying extra bonds. And at that point, there were, and this is, emerging from conversations, quite a few conversations I've had with people at the bank, there were people who were getting quite nervous that they were going down the wrong path there and they should have been flipping. It's worth just saying, you know, the, the counter argument is the data, this is back in the middle of the pandemic, the data was really rubbish. We didn't really know what was going on with the labor market. The ONS wasn't collecting all the, the numbers that it, it used to. And so there's a big question mark as to whether you can trust anything the numbers were saying. But even so, they were looking at things and going, oh, hang on. There's a bit of a concern here, but we know what happened in, in the event. In the event, they didn't change course. They still kept interest rates really low. They didn't raise rates until the end of that year. They were the first central bank to do it, but they didn't really do it with as much conviction as some of the others. And that's where we are. And part of that gets to the fact that this wasn't just the Bank of England. It was across all central banks or, you know, all of the big central banks like the Federal Reserve, the ECB. No one saw this coming. They just thought we were going through this pandemic. Things were going to be a bit bumpy on the way out. There'd be transitory, as they called it, transitory inflation. And that would soon wear off. And then we'd be back to the normality, you know, so we'd be back to 2% inflation, interest rates, you know, at low levels. And everything completely changed quite shortly after that. Um, and it's easy. I mean, it's easy in hindsight to say they should have done anything differently. I think that the interesting question to ask, though, is if those people and, I, you know, those people at the bank who were concerned, if they had managed to persuade the rest of the monetary policy committee who set interest rates to raise interest rates a bit sooner, if interest rates had gone up a bit more, how much difference would it have actually made? And I think that's quite a knotty and unsatisfactory answer, which is, Probably not all that much because the UK doesn't control many of these prices. Maybe it would have been, you know, half a percentage point lower. But the, the quid pro quo of that was that we would have all been a bit poorer, or at least you would have had higher interest rates and people would have been worse off uh, a little bit sooner than they are now. But the problem is, it's that thing about, you know, economists can tell you all they, they like. They, they, they can provide you with the best models in the world, the best equations, long papers on how inflation works. In practice, no one really knows the psychology of inflation. No one understands it because it's a psychological thing. When, when is it that the human mind starts thinking, well, I don't, you know, I, I'm kind of used to that price. I'm going to ask for those higher, for, you know, a wage settlement like this. I do feel like I'm worse off. 
that gets you into kind of territory which actually is very difficult to model. And that's where we are. It feels like the genie might be getting out of the bottle. And we're at that critical moment where we find out whether the UK goes raring on ahead or, you know, whether it bumps down. But in the meantime, we're all getting worse off as a result. And that's what's quite grisly at the moment. Ed, you mentioned that it's largely a, a, a monetary issue and therefore the Bank of England takes responsibility. I mean, do you think the government does have a part to play? There has been a, I mean, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast in recent weeks, where political responsibility lies for inflation. On Tuesday, I think it was Rishi Sunak said at the liaison committee that, yes, there's monetary policy, which the bank's responsible for, but he also has two levers that he can pull uh, in terms of controlling inflation, fiscal policy, and then also supply side reform. Do you think for instance, uh, the furlough scheme, which was a fiscal policy and also injected large amounts of money into the economy, had an impact on inflation. Are we now experiencing that? It was an enormously big fiscal intervention. Happened at the same time as the Bank of England doing its own intervention as well, so quantitative easing right now. So it's quite difficult to disentangle the two of them. But I think it's a really good point. The government was splurging money at a crazy rate at that point, and they were splurging it with the support of, of, of all of that, you know, I say part, as part of the economic community, we were seeing what was happening. It looked terrifying. So something like the furlough scheme seemed to make sense. You can ask questions about whether they, in both of these cases, with the furlough scheme and with uh, quantitative easing, whether they went on for a bit too long and whether, you know, in hindsight, that was, that was a mistake. But here's the thing. In theory, that's kind of supposed to be irrelevant. In theory, the Bank of England should be able to roll with any fiscal punches it gets and basically adjust interest rates to compensate for that. And that's the issue is like, you know, yes, the government does have plenty of levers it can pull that can have an influence when it comes to inflation. But the whole principle of the setup that we've had, not, you know, not really just since 1997, that was when the bank was made formally independent, but really going back to 1992, when we started to use inflation as the anchor, um, and, it's, and if you look at British history, it's all about being trying to find various different anchors to try and control things like inflation and the flow of money around the economy. That anchor has basically said, in the end, it will be down to the Bank of England, the independent now Bank of England, to, to compensate for any fiscal largesse or kind of craziness or indeed not craziness that the government is doing. So if you have austerity, the Bank of England can be slightly more generous and allow interest rates to go lower and vice versa. So that's the theory. But again, I think we're testing all of this stuff and we're testing it because we, we have never been in a moment like, quite like this, um, or at least, you know, not, not for a long, long time. And all of those assumptions everyone had about how inflation had gone away forever are being kind of rightly tested. And, and they were a bit, you know, uh, a little bit kind of uh, premature, weren't they? When people were saying, well, we've vanquished inflation. It's never the case, is it? It's never the case in, in economics that you vanquish these things. You just, you put them in a box and eventually they pop up again. And most of the old problems come up again, sadly. That's the, that's the problem. Like the depressing thing about economics versus most other science, because of course, economics is not a science. It's a study of you know, humans and how they respond to incentives. And, you know, we have some frameworks to, to try and understand this stuff, but it's about humans. But whereas other sciences, you, you see the world actually genuinely making progress and kind of getting better and our, our deep understanding of what makes the world kind of go around changes and improves. In economics, that doesn't really feel like it's the case. We just rehash the same mistakes all over again, but just like rebrand them. <laughs> Ed, with all that being said, um, how foolish do you think it was or do you think it was foolish for Sunak to make halving inflation one of his five priorities? 
I mean, in hindsight, obviously it looks foolish, but at the time all of us were set. The Bank of England's forecast, which looked pretty safe, was that we would kind of come in well below five and a bit percent, which is kind of what it would entail to, to halve, halve inflation. It looked really easy. So to, to me, you look at all of those pledges, apart maybe from stopping the boats, and this is kind of going to a bigger, more political point, and it looked like they were all relatively easy, growing the economy. It looked like, yes, the consensus view that things were, the things were shaky, but actually most economists were like, well, actually, there's a really good chance that things bounce. Uh, growing the economy, uh, unemployment, uh, the, the national debt as well. Most of these things a few months ago looked pretty easy. And I think the idea was that the government would easily get all of them. It would tick all those boxes. But you remember you had those check boxes that Rishi Sunak was standing in front of saying that these are the goals. They would check all of those boxes off gradually. By the end of this year, probably they'd have achieved almost all of them, maybe not stop the boat, but who knows. And then the point was that was going to be the base, the, the, the starting point for a manifesto. And they'd be able to say, look, we delivered all this stuff. Now we're going to deliver the other stuff. We're the party of delivery. And ironically, now basically all of those pledges look like they're kind of doomed. You know, the establishment, the economists, people like me were like, well, that looks, that looks really easy, the inflation pledge. A lot of people out there will say, oh, I always saw this coming. I think that's nonsense. Inflation, like I say, is a really difficult thing. But like I say, it comes back to psychology. There was, there was an alternative universe where you wouldn't have necessarily had this, this reaction, but we did. That's just what happened. And it was very difficult to forecast, but we're in this world now. And the question is in part, how to, how to mop it up before it becomes, you know, an uncontrollable thing that we're stuck in for decades. After the break, we'll chat more about the impact of inflation and what cucumbers can tell you about your finances. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Weymouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. How fair is it for people at the bank to tell us not to demand pay rises and politicians to kind of say that they can't give in to strike demands because it could fuel inf inflation. Well, I think it's, I think it's, it's really clumsy, frankly, uh, when they say things like that, because it's not just wages. There are lots of contributing factors to, to inflation, including rents and housing costs and things like that. And I find it weird that they fixate on the, the wages side of it. I think you could make obviously that point about lots of things and just try to say to everyone, listen, calm down, uh, wait for a bit. I promise prices are going to come down. I did an interview with, uh, with Andrew Bailey. I was like, you know, cool camera. So I was asking on behalf of the rest of the people. And you, usually when you're doing those kinds of interviews, you don't interject. 
when when the person says something because it's you need a clean a clean clip and i asked him about the wages and he gave this answer you know which was which kind of i found a little bit i don't know flabbergasting because he was saying that you know we need we need wages people need to control their wages we don't want to see these big pay rises that we've seen recently to such an extent that you know were i doing an actual interview where you could interrupt i'd be saying hang on what are you sure I'm surprised. I'm just surprised at the uh, how uh, aggressively the bank is, is is responding to to that kind of thing, and I don't quite understand why. Because as I say, it's not just wages. You know, wages are a part of it, and they are clearly concerned that you're seeing this contagion. So it starts with prices, it goes through to earnings, and then it becomes difficult to con- control. You get that spiral that that we had in the 1970s. But even so, it's not just earnings; it's other things as well. Uh, it's 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 companies setting prices. It's profit margins. By the way, though, I think that's a really overstated thing. I don't think greedflation is the source of everything. I, it, it's a symptom of higher inflation right now more than anything else. Not to say that people aren't making big profits, but it's a symptom of inflation rather than the cause of it. Um, and also rents and things. It's across the piece we're seeing prices going up, as everyone would have experienced. And it's weird that they fixate on on wages. Can we just get you to expand a little bit on greedflation? That's something we've spoken about on the podcast before. Why is it a symptom rather than a cause? First things first, yeah. in the UK, so I, I, I kind of dissected the numbers. In the UK, so in, in the Eurozone, you do see when you break down GDP into different things, whether it's profits or earnings, uh, you do see that the profit share of GDP is kind of, uh, of, of the inflation bit of GDP. It's called the deflator. The profit share of that, so the profit share of inflation, has been pretty chunky in the Eurozone for, for quite a few quarters, a few years, really. In the UK, it's like a really different picture. Um, it does seem like profits have gone up quite a bit in the last quarter or the last couple of quarters. Um, but A, I think you've got some question marks over the data. Um, B, it's really quite short-lived and you had a long period where margins were really compressed. In other words, the margins that companies were were, were benefiting from. They were really compressed and in negative territory. Now they're in positive territory. So it's, it's hard to tell whether that's just a rebound from what you were seeing before uh, during the pandemic or something else. But the broader point is, you know, people are willing to pay high prices right now. Okay. It doesn't look so much like it's a supply thing, like companies seem to be keen to gouge because the margins haven't been incredibly high for a long time. It just looks like people seem to be willing to pay those ridiculous prices that you have to pay these days for avocados and cucumbers and all of the other things. And inflation is part, you know, this a lot of the time a symptom of the demand that people have out there. There's supply, the flow of money in the economy. If there's lots of money pushing around, if people have lots of money in their savings account and they want to spend and they go out and spend it, then companies are going to potentially charge them high prices if they are willing to pay those prices. So I just see it as more of a symptom of the fact that you've got lots of money chasing around, you know, in the system um, and you have lots of potentially lots of savings that have been built up over, over the pandemic. It should be said, though, and this goes to a broader point, not in an equal way, that richer people have far more in the way of savings built up over the pandemic than, than those who are kind of less well off. And this gets to another thing. Inflation obviously affects those who are less well off more than it does those who are, who are well off. It just does. It's a very arbitrary, regressive kind of uh, tax on, on people's welfare. Um, and what concerns me doubly, although it's, this is less about the inequality side of things, but, but it's, got, it's a bit of it. What, what also concerns me about what we're going through right now is higher interest rates are going to punish a very specific segment of the population. 
they and, they and they will actually benefit other people. So whereas with the pandemic, whereas with the gas price thing, you had a kind of equality. I mean, it was worse definitely for some people. There's no getting away from that. But you, but everyone to to a lesser or greater extent, or the vast majority of people benefited from what the government was doing to intervene, whether it was capping bills uh, or whether it was the furlough scheme. A lot of people benefited across the piece. Um, with this, those who have mortgages are going to be in real, real trouble. It's going to be awful. You know, it already is for you if you're refixing right now. It really is tough in terms of how much that's going to be squeezing you in the coming years. It's it's not nice. It's very bad. It's genuinely as bad as it was back in the 1980s for those people. However, and also for renters as well. So for a lot of, for a lot of people with buy-to-let, they'll be charging much higher rents because they're seeing enormous increase in their interest costs as well. And it's going to be tough for buy-to-let people as well if you can be sympathetic with them. Uh, it's not as easy to be a buy-to-let an annual right now for what it's worth. Uh, I gather. But <laughs> for those people who have paid off their mortgages, I don't have to let them go away. But I've just seen like it's the the the, the climate the climate for people with, for buy to let it's very easy to be a little bit kind of dismissive of these people with all the, these rental properties. But actually there's been a lot of changes, you know, the way that you can't write off interest anymore. A lot of changes that have made that much, much less attractive. And now on top of that you have interest rates going up like crazy. And so it's gonna be grisly, I think, for buy to let animals. But that's by the by. For all those people, it's going to be tough. For those who have already paid off their mortgages, generally older people, generally people who have retired, uh, people who are slightly better off, this is actually pretty good news. Yes, they're not getting the savings they'd rather like to have. The savings rate aren't all being passed on. But broadly speaking, things are getting a bit better for them rather than incredibly much worse. And it's that division of experience that I find troubling about the next few years. This is going to be a very divisive uh, on a kind of, to some extent, incomes basis, on a generational basis as well, um, a divisive kind of uh, economic slump of the kind that, you know, we haven't seen for a bit. It definitely, it very much, not that any of these previous bits of, you know, periods of misery we've been through were, we're all in it together. This will definitely not feel like we're all in it together. It's going to feel, you know, quite the opposite, unfortunately. I'm glad you mentioned that uneven impact of inflation because that's what I wanted to end on. I wanted to ask, what happens next? You know, do, is it is it inevitable that those people who you mentioned who have that the worst impact go through more and more pain? And politically, what are the consequences of that? Because obviously, we may be going into a different government fairly soon. Will they be the ones to oversee the worst pain of this situation? I think it's invidious because neither party looks like they want to do anything like helping out those who've got mortgages, you know, help for mortgage borrowers. And you can understand why, because basically what's the Bank of England trying to do? It is trying to inflict pain on the economy. It is doing that. It knows it. You know, privately, people at the bank say it. Yes, this is pain. We are, we are inflicting pain. But the pain is there so that you, you know, we have less money to spend at the end of the month because we've had to pay so much on our bloody mortgages, which means in turn, we have less money to spend at the shops and therefore we're not paying, you know, the kind of £1.50 for a cucumber and then gradually cucumber prices and everything else starts to come down. So it is a form of pain which diminishes the demand for stuff, which in turn means that people don't think they can charge so much and then you start to bring inflation down. But it's, it's inflicting a, full, a form of pain in order to, to reduce inflation. And if you're going to start helping people with mortgages out, A, you know, those who have mortgages for the most part, I'm, you know, I'm sure many people listening here, you know, by the standards of the country, they're, they're pretty well off. 
you know, this is not helping the, the worst off in society. You know, and even many of those who are, who are paying high rents, there, there are definitely some who are, who are in the kind of lower reaches who are going to be very badly affected by higher rents. But do you really want to give, you know, precious money at this point to those people who probably aren't the obvious people to, um, you know, aren't the most needy? I think that's a really good and not, not very easy question. Well, I think it's a pretty easy question, question to answer. Probably not, unfortunately. So it's a form of pain that no one is going to enjoy, but you, if you're being really rational, um, I don't think it makes that much sense for the government to intervene. But the second point is like, you, if you're doing that, you're kind of pushing against what the Bank of England is trying to do. The Bank of England is inflicting a pain that is, it feels is necessary. And you're going in and kind of mopping it up and saying, oh, no, don't worry. Um, have a bit more money to go out and spend on your cucumbers. That that then means, you know, cucumber prices stay stay high for ages. I'm sorry I keep going on about cucumbers, but I've been thinking about cucumbers <laughs> a lot recently. <laughs> cucumbers, the reason I think obsessed with cucumbers is that it takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of effort to make cucumbers. And um, because all these things, I, I'm. You I'm sound like you're speaking from bitter experience. <laughs> I'm deadly serious about. I've seen, no, I've seen. I've been out to see where they make cucumbers. Most of the cucumbers that you eat, this is a slight tangent, but you'll see it's relevant. Most of the cucumbers that we eat and buy in this in this country are made in greenhouses. Okay, and those greenhouses take a lot of gas to heat up. Okay, uh, and you need a lot of fertilizer, and that fertilizer is also really expensive because that comes from gas as well. Um, and then there's CO2 you pump in from the gas boilers. It's this amazing kind of system um, that has enabled us to have cheaper and cheaper cucumbers over the years. Then along comes this energy price crisis that pushes up the price of the gas, pushes up the price in turn of the cucumbers. And now no one in this country wants to grow cucumbers anymore. So we're having to import them all from overseas. And this gets to a broader point. First of all, it helps explain why your price of cucumbers is going up and why if you look at the, the label, it's much more likely to come from Greece or from Spain or from Morocco than it was before. Secondly, it means we're more at the whim of imports and Britain is more import price sensitive, which is a deeper issue because we're moving into this period right now where the world is deglobalizing, prices around the world are going up. So the price of everything from cucumbers to semiconductors might well go up too. And the UK is more exposed to that than most other countries around the world because we just are a big buyer of stuff from overseas. And in that environment, that looks like we probably probably will be more sensitive to international prices in the coming years. That goes back to you know where we started. Why is the UK, why does the UK tend to see higher inflation than everyone else when inflation's high? Well, it's partly because of that. It's partly because we tend to buy stuff from overseas. And so when those international prices are going up, then we are most impacted. On the, by the same token, when they're going down, we benefit quite a lot. So we benefited from the rise of China, the fact that there's this enormous disinflationary forces around the global economy over the last kind of 20, 30, 40 years. But now we might be about to move into a different kind of period for, for the world where gradually prices are going up as people reshore and they bring production back into their countries that all else equals spells inflation. And therefore things are going to get more expensive and they're probably going to get more expensive in the UK more than in other countries just because we are more exposed to all of that. So yeah, cucumbers are a useful starting point for understanding the state of the, the macro economy right now. And they've gone up lots. Cucumber inflation is running at about 50%. Did you know that? Wow. 40, 50% I didn't right actually now, know that. Which is, which is mental. Yeah, they've got up from about 50p to, to about a pound uh, on average. So yeah, if you, you, you see this in your, your local supermarket, your cucumbers, your tomatoes, they are telling you quite a lot about the state of the economy. 
Really interesting. Thanks so much, Ed. I think that's all the time that we have. Um, but I would encourage our listeners to go and read your whole piece, Broke Britannia, is the cover story of this week's uh, New Statesman, where Ed also talks a bit about how Brexit and austerity play into this scenario as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us or leave one in the YouTube comments. If you like the New Statesman podcast, please vote for us in the Listener's Choice category in the British Podcast Awards. You can vote now at britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting anytime until the 5th of September. Just type in the New Statesman podcast and then it will come up. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues Zoe Grunewald and Freddie Hayward. And our guest, Ed Conway, Sky News' economics editor and Cucumber Justice campaigner. We'll be back tomorrow to answer your questions in our next episode, You Ask Us. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. We're produced by Chris Stone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.